Oh Lord, we pray as we come to your word that you would use your word to accomplish your purposes in our lives. We pray, O oh Lord, for clarity of mind. We pray for conviction. We pray for strength. We pray for wisdom. We know that these things come from your word and that they come from you. So grant us these things by your grace today, O oh Lord, that we may live our lives more fully for the glory of Christ. In a time when there is so much resistance to him, we pray that you would strengthen us. We pray for our children. We pray for uh, both the children inside the womb and outside the womb, that the seeds of the gospel that are sown today in your time, Lord, would bear a rich harvest. Use this time to strengthen your people, to grow your people, and above all, to glorify Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to the book of 1 John. Not John. We'll be in 1 John today, chapter 4, uh, as we uh, continue a series that we've been doing. We did, we've done for the last five years, and it kind of continues today, but it's a series that uh, only falls on one day of the year. Uh, and that is Reformation Sunday. Today happens to be Reformation Sunday. Uh, October 31st is the date that marks the anniversary of Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. Uh, and this is, of course, if you know your, your church history, uh, as Protestants especially, this is one of our favorite events. This is the event, this is the event that kicked off what historians refer to as the Protestant Reformation. Uh, but let me start by drawing your attention to that first word in the phrase Protestant Reformation. That first word is Protestant. That's a very important word, and it's very important that we understand exactly what all of the implications of that term are. But what exactly is a Protestant? A Protestant is somebody who is protesting. What are we protesting? We're protesting lies. We're protesting half-truths, which are lies. We, we protest the same things that the Reformers, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, uh, Zwingli, uh, Buser, uh, Buser, all those, uh, scores of others, were protesting the same things that they protested. What did they protest? Well, they protested the twisting of the gospel. They protested the distortion of the gospel. And it was a fight that was worth fighting. It was an issue that was worth protesting over because if the church gets the gospel wrong, then we don't have the gospel. And if we don't have the gospel, we don't have anything. What is the church's purpose on earth? To preach the gospel. And so if we distort it, what purpose do we have left? Why would we even gather? What are we here for? If we don't have the gospel, we don't have anything. 
Now, there are at least two ways to view the Protestant Reformation. I've read some people who say that the Reformation was about changing things, making tweaks in how we do things, methods, in order to fit the cultural context. This, this is crazy to me, but one blog I came across says this. It said, quote, These shifts resulted in deliberately relinquishing old and familiar ways of doing and being the church in order to engage the church's mission in ever-changing contexts. So according to this view, uh, why did the Reformation happen? Uh, According to this author, he says, quote, because the church found herself in contexts so radically different and new that everything would have to be reimagined. End quote. Now, I try to read things charitably, uh, so, so I would say there, there is an element of truth there, may, kind of maybe, but this was absolutely not the reason that the Protestant Reformation took place. It had nothing to do with the culture changing and the church needing to adjust to reach the culture. That had absolutely zero to do with the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation was not about changing methodologies. It was not about reimagining uh, what the church has to do and be for the sake of cultural relevance. Rather, it was about reclaiming and recovering doctrines that had been lost. Doctrines that the church had once established, but which over the centuries the church had completely lost sight of. It was about reforming the theology of the church. The Roman Catholic Church had completely lost the gospel somewhere along the line in a big, messy pile of traditionalism and man-centered philosophy. That's why the Reformation was necessary. It wasn't about what do we need to change to go forward. It was about what do we need to go back and reclaim in order to reform as the church. So to summarize the doctrines that were lost, the reformers, you might realize, came up with five doctrines. We call them the five solas. These are doctrines that are related to justification, redemption, and the church's purpose. And each of the previous five years here at New Beginnings Church, we have studied those solas uh, on the last Sunday of each October, each Reformation Sunday for the past five years. Well, the word sola, if you remember, means alone. Uh, And and that is a very key word in all of these doctrines. You might recall that the doctrines are that we are saved by, uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, according to the Scriptures alone. Uh, These five doctrines, the the five solas, they're like an anchor. They're like a, a true north in that if the church ever gets lost, if the church ever wanders astray, if the church ever loses her doctrine, recovering these five solas will direct her back to the truth, will direct the church back to the gospel. Now if you fully understand these five doctrines, the solas, you have enough information to refute every false gospel out there. They will serve as an anchor. They will serve as a shield that will prevent you from either adding to or subtracting from what the Bible teaches about salvation. And so if you are a Protestant, 
you are protesting. In fact, you are protesting any and every addition to or subtraction from the gospel. That's what the Reformers were doing. That's what the Reformation was all about. You are protesting every false gospel. You are protesting every worldly ideology that would make its way into the church and corrupt her doctrine. These things are worth protesting. Truth is worth fighting for, contending for. And 504 years ago, this is exactly what happened when Martin Luther started the Protestant Reformation. Now it's amazing to consider that this was even an issue that the apostles and the first century church had to deal with. They had to deal with doctrinal straying as well. In light of the reality of false doctrine being smuggled into the church by false teachers, by by wolves who sought to devour the sheep, Jude wrote this. He said, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, in other words, I wanted to write to you and talk to you about the gospel, he says, I felt the necessity to write you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, unnoticed those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. That's Jude, uh, there's only one chapter, verses 3 and 4. What Jude reveals to us is that he was facing a similar situation to what Martin Luther would be facing 1,500 years later. That's kind of crazy to think, but that's always been the case. There's always been the possibility, if not the inclination, for false gospels and false doctrines to creep into the church. The thought of that happening, the thought that anybody would intentionally sneak into the fellowship of the saints with a false gospel for the purpose of turning Christians away from the true unadulterated gospel should be absolutely terrifying to us. It should be very sobering for us because that's always been a possibility. It's always been something that could happen and sometimes it does and so for the sake of preserving the purity of the gospel for the sake of protecting the true church from outside influences that would add to or subtract from the church's doctrine from the gospel jude encouraged the first century church to what to contend to fight earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. See, the fact that it was handed down, as Jude says, once and for all, implies that it should never, ever be changed. It does not need to be tweaked. It does not need to be made culturally relevant. It already is. So we should be very, very cautious about how we do things as a church and what we believe as a church. Because if we lose the gospel, we lose everything. One small tweak, one small turn, one small twist, it's all it takes and it's gone. You've, you've lost it. The Apostle John had something similar to say to his audience. 
uh, when he wrote his first epistle. They, they'd been infiltrated by heretics that we refer to as Gnostics. The Gnostics believed that there was this special revelation that an individual would receive uh, if they were only holy enough, or if they were only enlightened enough, or if they were only special enough. This knowledge basically wasn't for all people. It wasn't found in the Scriptures. Rather, it was a hidden, secret knowledge that only people who were super special or super enlightened were able to receive. Now, if if John's first epistle was indeed written to uh, to the local churches in Asia Minor, as most scholars believe, then one of the things that the Gnostics were supposedly enlightened about was their idea that Jesus didn't really take on flesh. Rather, instead of taking on flesh, he only appeared to take on flesh. So really, it was just an illusion. God was playing a trick on us by making it look like Jesus was fully human, but no, He was only fully God. It's a heresy called docetism. But John also recognized that the church would need to be on guard against all kinds of false doctrines and worldly ideologies which could make their way into the church. And so he wrote some instructions for the church to follow throughout the centuries to come in 1 John Uh, chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, which is going to be our primary text for the day. In fact, if you you want to look at this theme of warning against false teachers and false teachings, every single New Testament book except Philemon contains warnings of false teachers and false teachings. So it's obviously something that's very, very important. And John, uh, 1 John chapter 4, verses 1-6 to 6, contains some very helpful instructions for us. But the point of this passage is that the Reformation, or if you want to think about it this way, if you don't like the term Reformation, think reformation. The Reformation of the church must be ongoing. It has to continue throughout the age. We must constantly be checking our doctrine in order to ensure two things. In order, A, to ensure that we aren't straying from the faith that was handed down once and for all to the saints, and B, in order that the church may continue to contend for that faith, the true faith. This is a doctrine that we refer to as semper reformanda. It's a Latin term which literally means always reforming or being reformed. But the point is, friends, the Reformation isn't over. The Reformation never ended. It must continue actively. It must go on actively because the church will always, always face these challenges. There will always be a need to flush out what's false And to fight for what is true. John Calvin put it this way. He said, If there were impostors mixed with the apostles and other faithful teachers, what wonder is it that the doctrine of the gospel has been long ago suppressed and that many corruptions have prevailed in the world? In other words, if there were corruptions to the gospel that were infiltrating the first century church, how could we possibly be surprised that that would still be happening today. So today we'll be looking at 1 John chapter 4 verses 1 to 6. Uh, we'll read through that real quick and, and then we'll unpack it. 1 John chapter 4 verses 1 to 6. John says this, 
He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world." You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now, just to be clear about it, the Roman Catholic Church uh, at the time of the Protestant Reformation was not affirming docetism. They weren't denying that Christ came in the flesh. But docetism is just one of many, many heresies. It's only one of many false ideologies, false doctrines that has entered the church over the centuries. And I think, I think John was aware of the fact that there are pretty much countless ways to distort the gospel. Uh, so he doesn't frame his statement exclusively in a way that, uh, that is, that's uh, meant to counter only one false or aberrant idea. It's written so that the church would be on guard against all aberrant ideas and false doctrines. The problem that the first century church was confronted by is really no different than the problem that the church was confronted by in Martin Luther's time, 504 years ago, when he attempted to simply start a discussion about some things that he felt the church was mistaken about. But if we're being honest, it's the same problem that we're confronted by today. And it's the same problem that the church is always going to be confronted by. False doctrine and worldly ideologies have a way of making their way into the church. And Jesus, if you know his uh, parable of the wheat and tares, he told us that this is how it would be. He told us that it would be like this. He told us there would be tares that would be sown among the wheat. That is, that there would be false converts, false professors, and true professors of the Christian faith, and they'd be side by side in the church. And when you consider that recent studies have shown that 70 percent of professing born-again Christians believe that there are other ways to heaven than Christianity. 70, not 17, 70 percent say that. Well, when you consider that, you see the fulfillment of what Jesus told us the church would be like. By the way, the the key word there in that 70 percent is that they are professing to be born again. But other studies have shown that only six percent of people who claim to be Christian actually have doctrine that lines up with the Bible. Only 6% have a biblical worldview. And in my experience, that is completely accurate. But let me flesh out the implications of this. There are, there are tares among the wheat. Uh, there are false converts that get mixed in with true converts in the church. In fact, it's entirely possible that the tares actually outnumber the wheat. The number of false professors of the Christian faith 
in our culture very likely outnumber the number of true professors of the Christian faith. So what are we supposed to do about it? Should, should we just gather up the chairs and kick them all out of the church? Uh, that might sound like a, a pretty solid idea, except that when Jesus told the parable of the wheat and tares, if you know that parable, you know that he warned against that. He concluded with a warning. The, the slaves in this parable come to the master of the fields in, in the parable, and they say, do you want us then to go and gather them up? I mean, that seems like a decent way to deal with a bunch of false professors, right? Well, Jesus actually goes the other way with the story. Instead of, instead of gathering them up, the master of the fields responds to the slaves by saying, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. In other words, if we were to take this approach, if that was to be our response to the tares living amongst the wheat, to false professors being amongst true professors, what would happen is we will inevitably throw out some legitimate believers with the illegitimate believers. So Jesus goes on to explain the parable to the disciples, saying in Matthew chapter 13, verses 40-42, to 42, He says, So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So whose responsibility is it to deal with this problem, or at least what appears to us as a problem, of illegitimate believers being sown amongst legitimate believers. God's going to be the one to deal with them. He'll send His angels to separate them. But God is the one who's going to deal with those who try to infiltrate the church. We aren't to cast them out from our midst. And actually, if you think about it, that just gives the church an opportunity to preach the gospel to unbelievers every week. Every time the gospel is preached, you have room to assume that there might be one or two or or more in the room who aren't true believers. So how do we protect ourselves then? How do we protect our doctrine from this phenomenon that Jesus has warned us about, from, from tares being sown among the wheat? What do we do about false professors of the faith who threaten to infiltrate the church with false doctrine and worldly ideologies? What we do is we follow John's advice here in 1 John chapter 4. So verse 1 begins, if you look at it, with a two-sided instruction. It, it, it starts with what not to do and it is then immediately followed by what to do. He says, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are from God. Now it should go without saying that any spirit that isn't from God is a spirit that we would be really uh, wise to avoid. We would do very well to avoid any spirit that is not from God. But the warning is really, it's the same one that you've probably heard a million times. Your parents probably said it to you. People that you respect have probably said it to you. Don't believe everything you hear. Don't believe everything you see. Instead, what should you do? Test everything. 
tests everything. And so when somebody, say, they claim to be speaking for God or sharing insight that might be, uh, you know, very beneficial for the church in their opinion, or for family life, or for ministry, or for whatever, we should have a degree of skepticism. How do we know if it's a message from the Lord? Really, only if it comes from His Word. So there's a use for the Bible here. We, we use the Bible. We use the Scriptures to measure every other truth claim against. Now, the most obvious test is to see what somebody believes about Jesus. Uh, do they confess Him as the Son of God who came in the flesh? Now, John is speaking to people who were dealing with people who denied that. But this is the issue that they were facing with the Gnostics who taught Docetism. Uh, but, but keep in mind that, uh, th- that they would have claimed to have been Christians, these Docetists. If, if you would have asked, you know, do, do you believe in Jesus? Of course they would have said yes. So you'd have to take it a step further. Do you believe what the Scriptures teach about Jesus? Because the Scriptures teach that Jesus came in the flesh. We must test the spirits. We must constantly be testing what we're being taught. Do they affirm? Do they align with what Scripture teaches? Because even the Old Testament uh, Scriptures teach that Jesus Christ would come in the flesh, that He would be born in the town of Bethlehem, born of a virgin, be a descendant of the King David, come from the tribe of Judah, that He would be fully God and fully man, and so on and so forth. All these doctrines can be found in the Old Testament as well, which, of course, were the Scriptures that the first century church had. But the point is that we must test every truth claim against God's Word. This is not only something that we must do inside of the church as a congregation, but it's something that we must practice outside of the church in our daily lives as individuals as well, outside of the walls of the church. Now further, look down at verse 6 with me. We have to ask ourselves, does what this person is saying or what they believe or suggesting, does it fit with the teachings of the apostles? When John says, we are from God, he who knows God listens to us, that us refers to his apostolic authority. So let's put this into practice in order to help us understand what this means and and how this principle of testing things is applied. Let's say that somebody comes up to me after the service and they're very polite. They say, Pastor, you know, that was a a great sermon and everything, but I think that we could improve our services here by using fog machines and lasers to create, you know, sort of a a happy ambiance for people. Now, the first passage that I would go to in my mind is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, where Paul says this. He says, We have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the Word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Now, it seems to me that if we were to take that advice, and if we were to, you know, add some fog machines, first of all, I don't know if our, uh, if our electric, uh, if we have enough voltage for lasers and fog machines, but if we added fog machines and lasers, that could be very, very easily interpreted as walking in craftiness 
or adulterating the Word of God. Doing something to make it more alive. Something artificial. If somebody needs fog machines, if somebody needs lasers in order for the gospel to seem more real or more relevant to them, there's a very good chance that, as Paul says here, the gospel is veiled from them. And in that case, they don't need fog. They don't need lasers. What do they need? They need the gospel. They need grace. By the way, that, that passage in 2 Corinthians, that's the same passage I'd turn to if somebody came forward with the idea of preaching in a way that tones down the message, that, that makes those, those harsh, offensive themes like sin and repentance and, and God's wrath and hell, you know, makes those really offensive. No, we can't t- t- turn down the, the, the offense. We can't tone it down because that's adulterating the Word of God. The Word of God contains those themes in order to warn us because they are offensive to the natural man. See, the Bible warns us not only against false doctrine, but also against any worldly ideology. A fog machine with lasers works very well, I'm sure, at drawing a really large, happy crowd at a nightclub or maybe at a sales presentation. It works well for things like worldly endeavors. But Scripture prevents us from allowing such silly ideas to take place inside the doors of any church that takes their worship and their commitment to God's Word seriously. This is also why we as a church voted to leave the Evangelical Free Church a few years ago now. They were promoting a worldly ideology that has crept into the modern church, that ideology being called critical race theory. Now the problem with critical race theory has become increasingly apparent over the years, even more apparent since we left the Evangelical Free Church, it's become very apparent that it's actually a satanic ideology that demands the exact opposite of what the Bible instructs. And that's why various organizations that are promoting critical race theory are determined to destroy the family institution. Why would you want to promote an ideology? Why would you allow an ideology to come in that wants to destroy, that's designed to destroy what God has created? See, the Reformers recognized this tendency for false doctrine to creep in, for worldly ideologies to creep in, and thus they came up with this slogan of sorts, Semper Reformanda. Semper Reformanda. The church must continually be reforming. The church must continually be testing the spirits and contending for the faith that was handed down once and for all to the saints. And so to this day, we still protest. We still protest vehemently against anything being added to or subtracted from the gospel message. We must remain vigilant against these things. We must be diligent to examine ourselves, our doctrines, our lives, our practices, because it's so easy. And I would actually say it's natural for us because we all have a flesh nature. Pastors aren't exempt from that. Church leaders aren't exempt from that. Elders aren't exempt from that. We all have a flesh nature that would incline us to accept 
these worldly ideologies. And so for that reason, we must constantly be on guard against worldly ideologies, false doctrines, and false gospels. It is so easy and natural for us to drift. And history attests to that. So what would cause us to drift? How how does that even happen? Who, Who actually wants the church to drift? Our adversary, the devil, for one, uh, he, he wants us to drift. Our flesh would tempt us as well. And the world, the world would love to see us drift. They, they'd say, oh, n- now you have something to offer us. Now you can, you can give us money when, you know, when, when we need money, when we need something you know, to, to pay bills. Uh, now, you can, now you have something to offer us because you're, you're like us. They would love to see us drift. Make no mistake about it, friends. People are not, by nature, are not morally or spiritually neutral toward God or toward His church. If somebody is not a Christian, they are still actively and deliberately suppressing the truth about God in their own unrighteousness. The world, therefore, would love to see the church drift. The world would love to see the church fail. But what prevents us from failing? What prevents that from happening? Look what John says in verses 4 and 5. He says, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. Why? Because greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. Why does the world listen to them? Because they're speaking their language, so to speak. They're offering them, they're incentivizing what they're saying with things that appeal to the world. And so the world is listening. What they're promoting, what they're they're saying isn't foolishness to the world. The gospel's foolishness to the world. What these people, what these heretics were promoting wasn't foolishness to the world. The gospel will always be foolishness to the world. If what you're preaching isn't foolishness to the world, if what you believe isn't foolishness to the world, you haven't believed the gospel. False doctrine and worldly ideologies will always be attractive to the world. But they should never be attractive to us as God's people. Because the gospel, in the world's eyes, is foolishness. Spiritual truth to the world, to the unregenerate person, is complete nonsense because they can't understand it. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Because spiritual truth is spiritually discerned, and the world is spiritually dead. What can a dead person discern? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And yet, because there are tares sown among the wheat... Because most people who claim to be a Christian in our nation today don't even have a biblical worldview, to say the very least, the church must always be on guard against false doctrine and against worldly ideologies making their way into churches and into the lives of the congregation. The Reformation must continue. There is always, always, always work to be done in bringing the church back to what has been lost. We must 
reform constantly because the temptation and the inclination to drift is constant. And so, semper reformanda. We must always be reforming. Now, if you know me, you might think or you might know that I come across as something of an alarmist at times. Uh, and don't think for a second that I have no self-awareness about that. But I take this charge, I, I take this instruction that we find in all of the New Testament except for Philemon. Uh, this instruction that we find in Jude, John, and all these other places, I take this charge to guard against false doctrine and against false teachers very seriously. Because I know that all it takes is one tiny pebble thrown into the middle of a calm lake to cause ripples. In the same way, even tiny errors can lead to terrible and catastrophic errors in the church. As R.C. Sproul used to say, he said, quote, ideas have consequences, end quote. So what do we do with bad ideas? Well, if we're testing the spirits, we say, this doesn't align with Scripture and it's out of here. But as you survey the American church overall, it's not difficult, sadly, to find a lot of problems in our time. You find pastors and Christian thought leaders who wield just incredible influence over the church, much like the Pope did 500 years ago. You see worldly ideologies creeping into the church and causing incredible, terrible division. You know what the biggest one is? You know what the one that let critical race theory into the, into the church is? It's pragmatism. Pragmatism is the idea that what does it take to get somebody in our doors? We'll do it. You just tell us what, what's necessary for us to get people into our pews, and that's what we will do. There have been churches that have sent out surveys asking unbelieving neighbors, what does the church need to do in order to get you to go to church? And when they got those results back, that's what they did. It's pragmatism. Once you get pragmatism in the door, you get the seeker-sensitive movement. You get the emergent church, which we saw about 15, 20 years ago. And today, you have critical race theory. You have demonic, woke theology coming from that. What's next? What's next? Burke Parsons he was R.C. Sproul's replacement at St. Andrew's Church in Florida. He says this, he says, quote, The Protestant church is in greater need of reformation today than Roman Catholicism was in the 16th century. End quote. And I'll just say this, I don't think he's wrong. I don't think he's wrong. I see biblical illiteracy on the rise across the board in the American church. I see it not only in congregants who post ridiculously unbiblical things in comment sections on blogs and social media, but I see it in so many of the, uh, of the American church's celebrity pastors as well. And with this biblical illiteracy comes a boatload of unbiblical accommodation. So what do we do? What's the solution to all these false ideologies, all these worldly ideologies that have crept into the church? The solution is to test the spirits. The solution is to contend, to fight for the faith. The solution is to be on guard 
constantly checking ourselves, constantly reforming. And the great thing is that these doctrines that were reformed in the Protestant Reformation, that they were the, the, the doctrines that were recaptured, that were recovered, are still the key to preserving our doctrine, and thus still the key to preserving the church's unity. It starts with the foundation that Scripture alone is authoritative for all of our doctrine and practice. That's what John was essentially telling his audience. That's where we find the teachings of the apostles as well, by the way. But the church has to remain on guard. Our calling is to be a city on a hill. That's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, that we are, we are the light of the world. He's the light of the world, but He is living in us. We are the light of the world, a city on a hill, shining the light of Christ for all to see. Jesus said, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. But what does that mean? It means that that city is seen by all, including its enemies, and that that city will be under attack. And so who's watching the walls of the city? Who's watching the walls? We are. All of us. Every Christian should be. That's what the church has been instructed to do. It's a duty that faithful churches and faithful Christians have to take seriously. Because everything is at stake. The very purity of the gospel is at stake. 504 years ago, the church was in a very, very dark place because they had failed to uphold this duty. And if we are in a darker place now than the church was then, how much more is the church today neglecting this duty? And thus gradually, over time, in the Reformation times, there was a slow but continual progression in which tradition and worldly ideologies replaced the authority of Scripture and the purity of the Gospel. The solution then was to hold God's Word up and to measure every teaching against God's Word And whatever lined up with Scripture remained. Whatever didn't line up with Scripture was thrown aside. The same answer that they had is the answer to what we see in the American church today. By this, by God's grace, the purity of the gospel was recovered in the Reformation. And the Reformers were able to recover the biblical doctrines that over the centuries had been lost. And that is how we recover those doctrines and the purity of the church today. We test everything, especially pragmatism, against Scripture. Everything must be tested. Test the spirits. The baton has been passed down to us, to every true Christian today, to test the spirits. The reason that the gospel is pure today is because it's been handed down through the ages. We must maintain the purity of the gospel. Maintain the purity of the church's doctrine. Contend for the faith that was once and for all handed down to the saints as recorded in the Scriptures. Failure to do this will result in conformity to the world. Straying from biblical fidelity. Last year, Hundreds and hundreds of churches across our country, maybe even thousands, I I wouldn't be surprised if that were indeed the case, were proclaiming the same message that the world was 
You remember the, wor- the, the world's message last year? Justice. Well, wait a minute. Who's defining justice here? Are, are we going by the world's definition? Because that's what all these churches were calling for was the world's definition of justice, which is actually the exact opposite of the biblical definition of justice. The church and the world, friends, the church and the world never, ever have the same message. I believe that the words of Paul from Romans chapter 12, 1-2 apply here. There he writes this, he says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Do not be conformed to the world. What are the implications of a church that is conformed to the world? The implication is that they haven't experienced the renewing of their mind. That's a terrible thought. That's a, that's, a, that's a scary thought. See, being conformed to this world is the opposite of what we should, as Christians, see happening in our churches and in our lives. What should we see? We should see transformation through the renewing of our minds. Only God can do that. And to that end, He has given us His Word. He has given us His Holy Spirit to dwell within us and to help us understand His Word and to give us a desire and the strength to obey His Word. And He's given us the church. Church family throughout the ages. The church throughout the ages is like one huge Bible study. We stand on the giants, uh, on the shoulders of giants. The doctrines that the church has established through the ages, we have to be able to go to that and say, how did they, how did they get to this? How did, how did they arrive at this conclusion? And when you see how they arrived at that conclusion, we should be arriving at the same conclusion. He's given us church for that reason. He's given us church family to hold us accountable and to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, according to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. And so this Reformation Sunday, 2021, what I ask of you is to just remember what it means to be a Protestant. Remember what it means to be a Protestant. Remember what we are protesting It means protesting any addition to or subtraction from the gospel. According to Scripture alone, God has saved us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. These doctrines are our true north. The church must prevail over and against the false ideologies and the spirits of every age over the infiltration of false doctrine and worldly ideologies. But we must not fall prey to the temptation to do this according to our own understanding or by our own power. Rather, look to Christ. Trust in Christ. Lean on Christ. And remember that the reason that we will, that we must and that we will overcome is found in verse 4 of this passage here in 1 John. We'll overcome for only one reason. Because greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world.
The Spirit of truth dwells within every believer in order that we may test the spirits, in order that we may contend for the truth. Friends, the Reformation is not over. Far from it. Far from it. It, it, it is not going to be over until Christ returns. The Reformation of the church must be ongoing throughout this age. We must constantly be checking our doctrine in order to ensure, A, that we aren't straying from the faith that was handed down once and for all to the saints, and B, in order that the church may continue to contend, to fight for the true faith. There will always be a need for us to do that. There will always be a need to flush out what's false and to contend for what is true. As long as tares dwell among the wheat, the church will need reformers. And that's a calling that is on every Christian. Every Christian has that calling on his or her life because that's what faithfulness to the Scriptures requires. We must continue to protest. To protest every deviation from the Scriptures. Every deviation from the Gospel. Every false Gospel, every worldly ideology that tries to sneak in, it'll only come in if we're not on guard. We must remain on guard. We must test the spirits. May God grant us the grace to contend faithfully and to discern the spirits rightly as we constantly, continually renew our minds to align with His Word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You once again for Your Word. We thank You for the work of the Reformers that You used to recover the doctrines that have been lost, that have been replaced by worldly ideologies, by man-centered doctrine. We thank You for that work. And Lord, we recognize the need in our own day and age to continue this work of contending for the faith and of testing the spirits. And so we pray that by Your grace, O Lord, we would do this faithfully. Help us, O Lord, not to grow weary. Help us not to become jaded. Help us not to become numb to this reality. But by Your strength, by Your Spirit dwelling within us, we pray that we would be on guard, that we would be good stewards of the message that you have entrusted us with, the gospel. We thank you for it. We pray that the light of the gospel would shine brightly from our church and from any church that's faithful to your word on guard against the spirits of the age, all for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.